book of 1 Timothy is a pastoral epistle written by Paul the Apostle. It's one of his final letters to his protege and spiritual son, a young pastor named Timothy. And although the letter is intended for his ministry life, the content transcends and applies to the Church of Jesus Christ. Within this letter is the most explicit and complete instructions for church leadership and administration. Not only is the Christian's character of utmost importance, but also the church's culture is of spiritual significance. From the qualifications of elders and deacons to the quality of the times and seasons, this letter teaches the believer to guard the truth of the gospel against spiritual treason. And that is why 1 Timothy is a perfect template to follow for life and ministry. Because when we submit to the inspiration and course correction of this letter, the church will be pure, her people bolder, and the gospel clearer. The book of 1 Timothy. Dear church, this is your charge. All right, introductory statement. In case you're unaware, you are living in the days of deception. Self deception, sins, deception, Satan's deception. We would call all of that spiritual deception. Some have fallen prey to the spiritual Ponzi scheme. This Ponzi scheme is one that promises if you give of your time, if you give of your life, if you give of your resources, if you give of something personal, that of course the return on your investment will be equal or more. And what you find out with the spiritual Ponzi scheme that is at work is that it's a sham, it's a scam, it leads to shame. Nobody likes the feeling of being manipulated. Nobody likes the feeling of being conned. But there's something more sinister than a spiritual Ponzi scheme because at the end of the scam, you're aware that somebody got over on you. Unfortunately, there are those who are deceived and they're unaware. They're being led astray by lies. They're unaware that they're blind. The prince of the power of the air, the Bible calls him the God of this age. He blinds the eyes of man in order to keep us from the light of the gospel. Only the light of the gospel can unveil the eyes that are blind. So how do we keep from being deceived? Well, there's only one way and it's knowing what you believe. Sadly, I have to ask the question, do you know what you believe? Some don't know what they believe. They'll say they believe, but they're not aware of what they actually believe. And to know what you believe is to make sure that what you believe is being brought into alignment with the word of God. See, God gives us his word, his truth, his gospel, his standard. It's not smoke, it's not mirrors. He gives us with full transparency in his word what it is he would have us believe. 
So I'll reframe the question. Do you believe what God wants you to believe? Because anything less than what God wants you to believe and see is likely a lie. Whether it's self-deception, whether it's a lifestyle of sin, which brings its own deception, whether it's Satan's deception, do you know what you believe? Do you know who you believe? Because you need to know, and I'll start with the first C of the alliteration, you need to know Christ. I'm not naive. I understand not only in this community, this sanctuary, also when I have the honor of traveling and entering somebody else's context and community. I'm not naive. I know there are those who are in the seats who don't necessarily realize that they don't believe. Because they've been told a lie about salvation. They don't know Christ. They may know church, quote unquote. They may know Christianity because as the saying goes, I was born into a Christian family, but it requires you to be born again to be in God's family. It makes no difference. It matters not if we come to church but never actually come to Christ. The enemy is fine with your decision to come on a Sunday morning and sit in the sanctuary and perhaps even agree with everything I'm going to preach. But I guess what I'm trying to ask you is, do you know Christ? If you know Christ personally, intimately, you are born again. You have been given a new spirit, a new heart. Conversion is apparent. The evidence of salvation is conversion. I once lived a life in darkness. Now I bring it to the light. I once lived off of lies. Now I hunger and thirst for truth. I once was lost and now I know that I am found. Do you know this Christ I speak of? Do you know you're a Christian? The Bible says you can know that you know. How do we know that we know him? If we keep his commandments, we follow his word. First John. Now here's how this transitions. If you know Christ and your identity is Christian, you then become part of his church in that order. What I want you to know before we jump back into first Timothy is you don't come to church to come to Christ. What? I thought that's what this was all about. No, it's not. That's not what the Bible tells us this is about. You don't come to church to come to Christ. You come to Christ and become the church, which means I'm asking each of us to consider, have we ever actually given our life over to Christ? Have we surrendered? Have we submitted? Are we confident that we are born again? Not because you come to Landmark. I would never want to put out a false impression that because you come to Landmark, that you are good with God. My duty and responsibility is to press that so that with confidence you can say, no, I've given my life to Christ. There's evidence of repentance, the fruit of salvation. I am seeing him work in my life. There's conviction. The word of God convicts me. Conviction's good. 
I've said this before. I want to be convicted when I have a poor attitude, when I mistreat my wife. I want to feel conviction. That's how I know the spirit is alive. One of the words we're going to look at is the word conscience because it shows up in the text. We're laboring the leadership here to make sure that we are putting in place the various structures and programs and classes to at least bring you into what salvation looks like and how it applies. Let me say this, because I had an awesome conversation with a friend. Landmark 101, which we encourage everyone to take, is introductory to who we are as a church. But that doesn't mean that you're part of this church. I would invite a Satanist to come and take Landmark 101. Because I would want them to know what we believe as a church, what our pillars are. So it's possible to be in this community and keep coming. But I want everyone that walks through these doors and that hears these messages to be confident that they're in Christ and that's what makes them part of the church, not the other way around. Amen? Okay. With that being clear, I'm going to build off that in the weeks ahead. Remember, the text that we covered last Sunday was the end of chapter three. If you have your Bibles, grab them now. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter four. We completed chapter three, which is a hinge that rolls over to chapter four. I think that we make a grave mistake when we disassociate the next chapter or the next verse with the preceding section of scripture. I understand, and maybe you don't know this, chapters and verses were organized by man, not inspired by the Holy Spirit. While they're helpful, they can also do great damage if we are taking a chapter by itself and not considering the context of what was written before it. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Chapter four in First Timothy cannot be disconnected from what we read about in chapter three. And if you remember what we read in chapter three, Paul saying to young Timothy, I want to come in person, but if I'm delayed, I'm writing this letter. So not only are you, Timothy, my proxy in my place as a young pastor overseeing the church in Ephesus, the letter is going to be my proxy in my place to tell you what the Lord laid on my heart for the governance of the church. So these things I write to you, he says, though I hope to come to you, if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. House being the people of God or a family. That's why you can call somebody in here your brother or sister if you're both in Christ. Just as a biological family, you're bonded by blood. Deeper and more than that, the church, as the household of God, we are bound by his blood. And that blood runs deeper than any biological order. Does that make sense? And many of us know from having family who don't believe what we believe. Jesus said that he came to bring a sword and that sword would 
bring division. Based on where we stand with Christ, there is by default going to be opposition and division. If you stand for truth in a world of lies, you better believe those that are believing lies are going to stand against truth. So here Paul is saying, I want you to learn how to conduct yourself as part of God's family. And then he, which I love, defines the church, the ecclesia of the living God, our God is alive. And then the de definition, the pillar or column or post and the ground or buttress of the truth. And then he gives the Christian message. But the Christian message is dictated by the image of Christ himself or the message of Christ himself. And he actually documents an ancient Christian hymn. And I'll read it for you. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. This one verse, if, if somebody was to ask you what you believe, you can quote this one verse. You can expound upon each line of this one verse, and it will help you understand the image and message of Christ. And what we're going to look at very briefly is how it's also the image and message of the church. As we ended last Sunday, I labored to show you how these seven, I'll call them pillars, testify to the image and message of Christ in this order, revelation, incarnation, sanctification, examination, proclamation, salvation, ascension. That is both the arrival, birth, and life of Jesus, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And now he's seated at the right hand of the Father. This is where your king currently is, at the right hand of the Father. The Bible gives us illustration about it's analogous of the church. We are the body and the head is in heaven, not severed from the head. And this is what makes a dead church is that the body is severed from the head. It's a decapitated body, not the church of the living God. No, our head is alive and well. And a body that's connected to the head, I said it, when the head is in power, the body does not cower. The body does not fear. 1 Timothy 3.16 then is a succinct summary of everything about the body of Christ, from its earthly formation to its heavenly destination. Let's consider this one statement and then we'll move on. Christ is the revealing of godliness. Jesus Christ is the revelation of godliness to the world. Now he left us as his body, the church, which means the body is his godliness revealed to the world. How does Christ reveal himself to the world we live in right now? Anybody know? Through the church, through his body. It's a cliche unless you actually believe it that you are the hands and feet of Jesus. Cliche, because it's overused, but if you actually believe that God works through his people and how the non-believing world can experience the God we serve is through you. 
It's through your lips and what you proclaim. It's through your life and what you declare. So similarly, there is a revelation for the church. Jesus said, I will build my church. That's the revelation. It's Jesus's church. He'll build it. There's an incarnation of the church. What? If Christ was incarnate, God in flesh, then of course the church is God in flesh. He lives in us and through us. The church is also sanctified. The translation might say validated in the spirit. Jesus was justified in the spirit. The church is justified in the spirit. Justified by the just one. This is what makes us set apart, sanctified. I like playing with that word justified. When the enemy comes in and attempts to remind me of what I've done or what I'm doing, I like to take this theological word justified and remind him that Christ has cleansed me and forgiven me and paid for my sin debt in full forever. It's final. And I say justified. I am justified. Just if I'd never sinned in the first place. This is how God looks at you. This is humbling that a holy God would look at us as if we had not sinned against him in the first place. Want to know why? Because all that we deserve was hurled upon Christ on that cross. Do you know this, Jesus, I'm speaking of this morning? The church then is also examined, according to 1 Peter 1.12, by angels. Now, I'm not even going to dare try to figure that one out. But the Bible says angels are curious about this salvation that we have been given. It also tells us, which is an encouragement, Hebrews 1.14, that angels are assigned as ministering spirits to those who are the recipients of salvation. Amen. Now, listen, I don't know all that that implies, but I'm encouraged to know, especially in a world that is attempting to destroy the next generation, that Jesus, out of his own mouth, said this. They're guardian angels. They see my father. So woe to anyone that touches the children. There's a guardian angel, and I believe there are ministering angels. There's a war that is raging in the spiritual realm. The book of Daniel kind of opens up that window. We get to see what's happening behind the scenes. I'm encouraged to know that our God has deployed his ministering angels. I'm also encouraged to know that the message of the church is proclamation. It's the Great Commission. It's Matthew 28. Go and make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teach them everything that Jesus commanded. All authority was given to Jesus in heaven and on earth. And of course, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Our message is salvation. There's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. And eventually, ascension. I believe whether I go to him or he comes to me, there's coming a day where I'm going to meet my king. How about you? Now, we say all that to say this. This is our message. This is our image. And that is why the enemy works to sabotage this message and this image. One of the things I've said over and over in different ways was about whatever God establishes, there's an enemy that wants to ruin. 
Whatever God has ordained, the enemy wants to undo. Somebody sent me a podcast. I listened to it last night. The pastor said something profound. He said, when he's addressing issues from a biblical worldview, how they come off depends upon the filter of the person that's listening. He says, how he's saying it is based on up or down. How one receives it sometimes has them measuring it based on right or left. And if we measure things by right or left, this is when we get into, don't get political, but if the minister is constantly ministering based on what is up and down, up heaven, down hell, then the truths or the exposing of lies is going to help us understand there's a strategy and the enemy wants to turn that which is right side up, upside down. And everything God has given to us that should be right side up, the enemy is working overtime to turn it upside down. And sadly, the majority are living in an upside down world and they think it's right side up. But only the church and the Christian are living in a right side up world that can discern what is upside down. And you know the enemy is working to undo what God has done when what is intended to do a good work, a blessing, is now doing the opposite. What do you mean? What do I mean? I mean, not only Romans 13, not only the American structure of government, both lend themselves for us to understand God has instituted government to be a servant, but now it's a tyrant. It's doing the complete opposite of what it was intended to do. University and places of education, originally seminaries for Christian biblical training, they are no longer places of education. They are now incubators of indoctrination. They're doing the complete opposite of what they were intended to do. How about media? Media was once about reporting about the facts on the ground, nothing more, nothing less. Now media purports what is no longer grounded in facts. It's the opposite. It's upside down. How about medicine or big pharma? Their purpose should be trusting the science. Now they scientifically cannot be trusted. They're doing the opposite of what they were designed to do. How about the judicial system? The judicial system gives you an imagery of its purpose, the scales of justice. Unfortunately, now the rulings are measured by the scales of wokeness. How about this one? A mother's womb should be the safest place in every neighborhood. Now it's the most dangerous place to be because of planned parenthood. How about this one? Being a child should be a time of innocence. Now it's the time for evil progressives to do the most damage. It's upside down. I would say it's right for parents to have rights over their children. 
Now those rights are deemed wrong because mental rapists are in charge. It's upside down. The church of Jesus Christ, the true church, is a pillar and a ground of the truth. But what we're watching, some churches, quote unquote, are breeding grounds for lies, which is why chapter three, verse 14 to 16, lays out the groundwork, pun intended, and the pillar, which is the role of the church in the war on truth. We are to uphold and support the truth. Our foundation is supposed to stay firmly fixed on the truth. And this is why the Spirit inspires Paul in the next verse to say this. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature or creation of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine, which you have carefully followed. I wanna begin with that verse, verse six. Because I get it. Some might, in their own way, in their own mind, say, why are we talking about some of this stuff? Because verse six says, this is what makes a good minister. He's willing to instruct the brethren, the brothers and sisters, about these things. About what things? The things we just read. That in the latter times, the Spirit explicitly says, many are going to depart from the faith. Many are going to adhere to or give themselves over to seductive spirits and believe and be taught by, and this is hard to understand, doctrines of demons. And a good minister is willing to instruct because he wants to equip the saints to tear down evil constructs. The only way for us to understand the ideologies and the lies which are packaged in seeming truth is if we know the truth so well, we can discern a lie that comes from hell, up or down. Paul would write to the church at Corinth, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. And that list I gave you about things that are upside down are currently held by demonic strongholds and lies casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Everything in our world exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Bring, listen, bring every idea, every thought, everything you see, everything that you're scrolling through on social, bring it into captivity to Christ. And let him decipher and discern whether it's true or it's a lie. And then the final verse says this, 
being ready, this is you and I, to punish all disobedience when our obedience is fulfilled. And a good minister, a good Christian is willing to instruct. This is what brings nourishment through the words of faith. This is what makes good doctrine, good teaching. It's healthy. And of course, a life that follows that teaching speaks a million sermons without saying a word. Now back up with me for a second. Verse one. Now the spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. There's a lot there. First and foremost, you got to note this. The Bible is the best commentary on the Bible, which means other verses help us understand the gamut of principles in the word. One verse, for example, it's two verses, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable. Doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness that the man or woman of God may be mature, complete, for every good work. Translation, Genesis to Revelation is God-breathed. The Spirit expressly says from Genesis to Revelation, this is God's Word. But in this verse, it seems as if Paul is receiving fresh revelation, he's pulling from the words of Jesus in Matthew 24, he's being mindful of what he wrote to the church at Thessalonica in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, but something's occurring whereas he writes, now the Spirit explicitly says, this should cause every Bible student to pause and ponder what it is the Spirit is explicitly and expressly about to say to the church. Because it would still be true if he wrote, now I say in latter times. We would still take it as the word of the Lord. But no, he's saying the Spirit wants you to know that in the latter times, and the latter times are the times from Jesus' first coming to his second coming. The timeline of latter times is the last days. It's been 2,000 years though, pastor. Doesn't sound like it's the last days. The point is the Christian is supposed to live as if it's the end times because the Christian's life can end at any time. So we live with an urgency. But there's clues in the Bible. Like John would write, this is the last hour. But it was the first century. It wasn't long after Paul wrote this to Timothy. So if he wrote, it's the last hour, almost 2,000 years ago, I don't need to be a rocket scientist or a brain surgeon to say, if it was the last hour then, then we must be in the last minute of that last hour. What is it about these times, these latter times? They're marked by, note this, defection, deception, Demonic doctrine, in that order. They are marked by defection. What is that? Departure from the faith. The Greek word means to fall away from the standard of faith. 
It means to instigate, to rebel. Interestingly, the word depart means to stand off. Towards the end times, many are going to depart from the faith. Many who are in the seats are eventually going to leave. They're going to be standoffish. They're not going to want anything to do with biblical sound doctrine. This is the idea behind apostasy. Apostasy is a defection. There's two types of apostasies. There are those who leave the faith and want nothing to do with it. Maybe they were raised in it. Maybe they went to a Christian school. There's a a really disturbing stat about our youth and the percentage of them that leave the church after, you ready for this? After either high school years or college years, which is interesting that an eight-year period, they could be raised, right, up to like 16 years with you. And then whatever happens for those four years at school or at university undoes what you thought you were doing. And you're paying for it. Holy. Many are departing from the faith. The other form of apostasy is they're not just departing. They're not just defecting. They're staying around and seeking to infect. So they not only defect, they stick around and seek to infect. These are spiritual imposters. These are spiritual deceivers. These are false teachers. Would to God that each of us would be like the Bereans, that regardless of what I'm saying from this podium or pulpit, that you're doing your own cross-referencing, your own studying, and you're aware of what's in the word so that an imposter, right? Not a pastor, an imposter can't pull the wool over your eyes. The apostate church is alive and from hell. The true church is alive and well. The apostate church has a purpose, counterfeit the gospel, contort the truth of the Bible. And since deception today and delusion at an all-time high, the true church, you get, get this? We hold the line, that's it. One of my favorite movies of all time, probably can guess what it is, I reference only a handful of movies. Which one is it, Doc? Braveheart. He nailed it. It is Braveheart. William Wallace. He was a Scottish patriot, but he didn't start off that way. He started off as a farmer and through tragedy and what happened to his wife, he decided to get involved, but he got involved at a time where England and the tyrannical rule of King Edward was crushing the natives in Scotland, when William Wallace decided to get involved, here's where the analogy spiritually comes into play. One of the scenes, they're outnumbered, they're outgunned, and their strategy before one of the great battles, one of William Wallace's comrades say, what are we going to do against their cavalry? That would be their soldiers on their horses. A cavalry of that size would mow down an army of our size. So we're going to make spears. Spears as long as a man. 
<laughs> twice as long as a man. You've seen the movie. Here's the scene. They're all standing, holding the line. And here comes the cavalry. And William Wallace is commanding his soldiers. And he's saying, hold, hold. And you can imagine the panic that's setting in. The horses and the soldiers with their spears and their swords are coming quick, hold. And at the last minute, now, and they all lift up these long spears and poles. And what I see in that physical battle scene is exactly what the church should be demonstrating in the spiritual realm. See, the Bible says when the enemy comes in like a flood, it is the spirit of God that lifts up a standard against the enemy. And the standard is the truth. The standard is the gospel. The standard or the sword of the spirit is the word of God. Imagine, can the enemy of darkness push back a church who is willing to hold the line of truth and hold up the word of life? Oh no, the enemy cannot beat back a church that is unwilling to move from the truth. In a world where it says many will depart from the faith, can I give you a litmus test on how to identify those that are departing from the faith? It's not hard. Whether it's a church at large, there's apostate churches, denominations that were grounded and rooted in scripture decades ago are now completely apostate. They're taking the entire denomination and they're departing, ready? From the faith. One way to discern or know a person or a church that is apostate is when they propagate the same message as the reprobate. Did you get that? It's on the screen. One way to know somebody has gone apostate is if they're now parroting and puppeting the same message as the reprobate, the non-believing world. We have nothing in common with the non-believing world. What fellowship does light have with darkness? What relationship does righteousness have with unrighteousness? What connection should Christ have with Belial? False gods. None. I don't care what it is. Whatever it is, the system of evil or the world at large is yelling at the top of their lungs. You better believe God is whispering the complete opposite. Anytime you see people congregating and yelling and raging and holding up signs, reproductive rights, my body, my choice, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Anytime you see the world yelling at the top of their lungs, Christian, step back, get in your word, and you better believe God is whispering the complete opposite. Paul says to the church at Corinth, be on guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong. He writes again to the church at Thessalonica, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Translation, the red carpet 
that is going to precede or be in place for the man of lawlessness is a culture of lawlessness, a world that is rejecting the things of God, a world that is upside down is going to receive the one who is upside down. He's called the Antichrist. But the culture and the landscape of our day, all the signs of the times are converging. Decades ago, there might be a pocket of things that were curious. And of course, the Christian should be cautious on how we apply a world event as a contraction or a sign of the times. But since technological advancements, something that's happening in one part of the world can actually be echoed and transmitted to the other part of the world. And now you have in place a system where revelation, this is end times, this is latter times, this is a sign of the times, a system that is ready for a one world ruler, a one world leader, a one world government, a one world economy, a one world religion. And one of the legs that's gonna prop up this one world system is the apostate church. Those that think they're good with God when they're not. And one of these signs, it says in verse five, do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things, Paul said, and now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. There's a restrainer at place. Verse seven says, the mystery of lawlessness, the unveiling of lawlessness is already at work. Only he, capital H, who now restrains, will do so until he, capital H, is taken out of the way. There's a great restrainer currently restraining evil? You mean to tell me it can get worse than what it is right now? And the reason it's not is because the great restrainer is currently activated. And where is he currently activated? In his church. And the moment you, as a Christian, remove yourself from holding the line in your marriage, in your family, in the workplace, the moment you stop being salt and light is the moment evil floods in. But because you're there, because you're making a stand and choosing to delay the decay of the day, the great restrainer inside of you will hold back that flood of evil. Why? Because when the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit lifts up a standard. I believe these verses are an allusion to the rapture. I am biblically persuaded there will be a snatching away, that we will be caught up. And the moment that happens, the church is removed. And that's when all hell literally breaks loose. Many will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits. What is a deceiving spirit? If the church and the Christian are governed by the Holy Spirit, then non-believers in the world and those that apostate are governed by unholy spirits. The verse says, deceiving spirits, I wrote equals deception and delusion. Now, as already mentioned, there's self-deception. You've deceived yourself. There's sin's deception. You play with sin. You're giving access to the enemy 
to touch his stuff. Does that make sense? The moment you mess with sin, you are allowing deceiving spirits in. Then there's Satan's deception. Satan has a kingdom. His goes from down and comes up from hell. Satan's kingdom has emissaries, ambassadors. His ambassadors are at work, deceiving spirits, or as God in his word says, for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. When it says God sent them or gave them, it's God basically removing his hands from them. This is a Romans one world. He gives them over to their own wicked ways. And as he gives man over to his own wicked ways, of course, it's induced by the demonic. Many have succumbed to deceiving spirits. What is one of the tools that can keep you from being deceived by unholy spirits? Well, I hate saying this every week, but I believe it is the only way to not become the prey of a delusion or a lie. You have to stay devoted to the truth. There's only but one way. Devotion to the truth is the only protection that will keep you from the delusion of a lie. That's it. Devotion to the truth. Being a defender of the truth. Paul says to Timothy in the second letter he wrote to him, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Rightly dividing it, it's cut it straight. It's a scalpel. Make the incision accurate. How many Christians can rightly divide the word of truth? I believe biblical illiteracy is one of the reasons we fall prey to a lie. Notice those that are departing from the faith and there's a comma, it then says they're giving heed to deceiving spirits. That means they're adhering to. That means they're following. And of course, deceiving spirits are always accompanied by, you ready for this? Deceiving spirits can be narratives or ideas that people are exposed to outside of the assembly. It can happen right through your cell phone screen. It can happen right at your work cubicle. But this next one, doctrines of demons, the word doctrine is systematic teaching. This likely only happens where the people are gathering and subjecting themselves to a teaching. Translation, it happens in churches every Sunday. And I use that word church, quote unquote. What is a demonic doctrine? We've gone from defection, deception, to demonic doctrines. Riddle me this. If a demon was to take the pulpit, what would they teach? This is how you figure out what is a demonic doctrine. If a demon was preparing all week to preach a sermon, what would he preach? Well, 
Number one, that Jesus is not God. That is the ultimate lie. Let me rattle off to you every world religion that has Jesus in their holy book or teaches about his life in some form or fashion, whether he was a good moral teacher, he was a prophet, every one of them have Jesus in their teachings, but he's not God. Mormonism, Jehovah Witnesses, Christian Science, Oneness Pentecostal, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, all of them. They've reduced Jesus to just a man or a prophet. If a demon was in the pulpit, what else would he teach? He would teach the lie that you can be like God. This is the message of self-esteem. The gospel does not esteem self. The gospel redeems self. The gospel does not boost up my self-image. The gospel births in me God's image. There are messages that are man-centered. They're only focused on man. That's exactly what a demon would teach. Demonic doctrines are made up of legalism, adhering to something of the law, but not following God's commandments because you recognize that you're a sinner saved by his grace and you want to please him. This is adhering to the law, thinking that the law can save you. That's a demonic doctrine. Cults are built on legalism. Denominations through the ages have been built on legalism, concerned more about what someone's wearing than whether or not they're wearing Jesus Christ. Liberalism is a doctrine of demons. Liberalism will tell you, listen, God's grace is enough. And it is. And this is why it's a deception. That you can keep living unchanged, unconverted, continue to go back to the vomit, continue to sin and not be convicted but God's grace is enough, and it is. But if you're living that way, if you're still living in your sin, it's probably because you've never been converted. And there are churches that will major on just love at the expense of truth, licentiousness, or the license to sin at God's expense is always followed by the message of love is love. That's a doctrine of demons. Love is not love. God is love, which means God defines love. And when I understand God's definition of love, I then can love God with all my heart. For this is love. Not that you love God, but that God loved you. See, I just took what is upside down, love is love, and I flipped it right side up. Now, if I'm properly loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, then his love in me equips me to love my neighbor as I love myself. Are you seeing how this works? And sometimes love requires you to call out a neighbor, a friend, a family member, a child, and tell them the truth in love. But love is love would have you not hurt their feelings. And one of the most tragic gateways to hell is the pew that sits under the Christless, convictionless pulpit, unwilling to tell the truth. That's a doctrine of demons. If the Lord would will next time we're together, I'm actually going to teach and tease out what does it mean that they 
were forbidding to marry? What was the demonic doctrine that was causing them to abstain from food? If you read those verses, you see he spends a couple verses explaining the idea behind food. And what God has sanctioned as good is good to receive. We're gonna talk about that in more detail together, but I wanna jump right to verse two as we come to a close. Whether they're the recipients of these spiritual lies or they are the ones propagating these spiritual lies, both camps speak lies in hypocrisy. Why? Because if you're not living off truth, it's inevitable to live off a lie. But the interesting thing about speaking lies in hypocrisy, the word hypocrisy is the Greek word for an actor who wore a mask, a mask wearer. So they were two-faced. They were one face with one group. They were another face with another group. To be two-faced always produces two tongues, double-tongued. To be double-tongued always comes from a divided heart, two hearts, living one way for the world, living the other way for the church. And the Lord is calling us to singleness of face and singleness of tongue, from singleness of heart. These individuals don't practice what they preach. They're living a complete lie, which is why you now understand why chapter three as we studied it, the overseers, the elders, the bishops, and the deacons, those categories of offices in the church are held to a standard above reproach, which means they live a life in seriousness based on God's holiness. Not that they're perfect, but when there's a mistake, they're the first person to own it. This is what we completely miss. Does that mean I'm perfect? No, it means when I make a mistake, I'm the first to own it with remorse and I come back and the cross gives me fresh forgiveness because I appreciate God's grace. It says they have their conscience seared with the hot iron. The imagery, it speaks of either the branding of a cattle, a criminal, or, a, or sometimes a slave or soldier. To be identified, the branding process would often sear the skin and if there were nerve ends in the position where they were searing, they would be numb. They would be desensitized. Think of a conscience as nerves. And the conscience is supposed to be the voice of God. If the word of God lives in your conscience, right? Conscience with knowledge. It's the voice of God that either, you ready? Accuses or excuses. There's an area of Christianity where it's right of conscience. It's not sinful. It's not a essential. It's just, hey, my conscience is keep, listen to me, is keeping me from doing this thing or that thing. But I can't force my right of conscience on everyone. That becomes legalism. My conscience needs to be captivated by the word of God. Martin Luther said, my conscience is held captive by the word of God. These guys have consciences that were seared. If I had time, I would teach on the various mentioning of consciences in the scripture. There's a clear conscience. There's a good conscience. There's a guilty conscience. There's a corrupt conscience. There's a seared conscience. And I might miss one or two there, but the worst conscience is a seared conscience. 
What is a seared conscience? A seared conscience leads to love growing cold. A sealed conscience leads to love growing bold. There's a complete different outcome to love. Love either grows cold, love towards God, love towards man, or love grows bold, bolder towards God, bolder towards man. I have more to say about the conscience and I'll do so another day when I tease out what is marriage and what was this commandment to abstain from food that was a doctrine of demons. But I wanna end by encouraging you to note the true church is always getting bolder even as the days are getting colder. The true Christian is always getting bolder and brighter even as the days are getting colder and darker. A good minister instructs the church on these things. He's nourished by the words of faith and of the good doctrine. His conscience is vibrant and alive, sensitive to the Holy Spirit. We have to have our consciences held captive to the word of God. Dear church, you're living in the days of deception. This is your charge. And since we're not dead, we're not done. We've heard it by God's grace. Let's do it. Let's pray. So Father in heaven, I pray in accordance with your will for your people from your word, what we just heard, that in the latter days, many will defect. There will be deception and lies, delusion. What should be right side up is upside down. Demons will be systematically dismantling truth. But we know where this all ends. You are victorious, which means the church is victorious. So we begin now from the posture and position of victory. We cannot lose, but we are charged to hold the line. So I pray each person here would consider where they stand with Christ. Do they know him? Have they confessed their sins to him? Have they received his Holy Spirit? Have they submitted and surrendered all? Can they confidently say, I am a believer in Jesus? Would each of us take that seriously? Would we understand what you ask of us? And would we, even now, sing you praise? Would we know the creed and what it means in the name of Jesus? This is my prayer, amen.